Let's get into the book of James. So if you guys would turn there in your Bible or your app or whatever you have, um, please do that. James chapter 5. We're going to continue our series in the gospel on the ground in the book of James. So I'm going to read James 5, uh, 13 to 16, and then we'll just get started after that. So James 5, 13, I'll start there. It says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your, sin, your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Uh, let's just pray again uh, before we start. Father, thanks for this morning with my brothers and sisters and with everyone gathered here today. And God, I pray that your word would um, come alive to us in some way. Lord, only you know uh, exactly where each one of us is at uh, in our experience of life right now. And only you can speak to our hearts. God, I can't do that. And so I pray that you would um, have mercy on all of us and help us as, as I speak and we listen together that you would um, help us to take something away that would uh, point us to you, God. Help us to know you better from this time and speak to our hearts and our minds um, because you are God and you know all and you are intimately acquainted with every single person here. So Lord, would you speak in your grace in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are in this series, like I said, the gospel on the ground and um, if you don't know, we've been, been in this book, the book of James. If you don't know what a book of the Bible is, a book of the Bible, James, is a letter written from one of the early Christians, one of the early apostles, written to other groups of Christians. That's what all the letters of the New Testament are. And James is written to a group of Jewish believers that are scattered throughout um, the Roman Empire there. And he's writing to them because they're experiencing various trials and difficulties. He said that all the way back in chapter 1, if you remember. Count it all joy, brothers, when you experience all these trials and difficulties. And the whole book has been trying to tell us how your faith is being tested and your faith is being shown to be either real or not real. And in the midst of all of that, um, he has said, if it's real, this is what it will look like on the ground. It will look like people who ask God for wisdom. It'll look like people who can... Uh, not be quick to speak, but be slow to speak and slow to wrath. It'll look like people who won't be double-minded, who'll go to God and trust. It'll look like people who, um, teachers who understand that they have effect with their word. It will look like believers who won't be uh, split up by economics and actually looking down on one another either way, up or down or sideways, and, and kind of being prejudiced. It'll look like all these things. And most recently, in the last few weeks, we've looked at chapter 4. And in chapter 4 and 5, we've looked at the, the reality that um, being a believer in the true gospel of Jesus Christ will give you the ability to walk in humble patience like the prophets and like Job. Um, those unlikely heroes of patience that are in this uh, book that normally we look to David or Abraham, but Job is this hero in the Bible and these prophets who suffer are as well. And then last week, the height of all of this, James said, above all, I want to tell you to do something that is let your yes be yes and your no be no. Who felt guilty in that message? I think I did right there, right? So let your yes be yes, let your no be no. 
And the reason he said that is because the height of Christian maturity and character is when you can, in your suffering, still reflect who God is. You can reflect the truthfulness of God, the veracity of God, his character, and, and, and all those things. And so we've got to this point now, and we're going to come to the last section in the book of James. There'll be uh, two, or I'm sorry, two messages after today that we'll be giving uh, overall. And it's going to come to a surprising, in some sense, co- conclusion here because he's going to tell us to do something, the gospel will go on the ground in a way that for us, many of us, we think is actually not on the ground and not very practical. You see, the whole book's been very practical in many ways, and this last exhortation that we read, it it seems to some of us to be impractical, and that is that we're to pray. We're to pray. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes the most impractical thing to me is to pray. Uh, I think, what is it going to do to sit in my room or a room and talk into the air for an hour? Maybe you felt that tension. Now, thankfully, I know I'm not just talking to the air, but that, if you're not a believer here today, I want to acknowledge that that's what you might think of prayer, and you might think that's why I I don't do it. And that's why it would be foolish to do so. And, and we feel that as well as Christians at times. Like, why do I actually sit here and do this? What effect have I seen? But yet, James finishes this letter as he would in, 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 in kind of a salutation sense, saying, I want health for you, like the Roman letters always had. But he's going to say something deeper than that and say that I want you to experience the God who heals. And so, um, Basically, James is going to, in this sermon, which I'm calling A Praying Life, he's going to instruct us that we are to take the main experiences of our life, which are suffering, cheerfulness, and sickness. And all of that, my first point is that prayer is our God-centered response to all of life. So I'll read verse 13 again. It says, "If is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing songs. What he's getting at here is like, you're going to have trials. I I hope you've realized that, right? Every single person here is going through some kind of trial right now. I know it as a fact of the human experience. If nothing else, we're all going through a trial with the wars that are happening in this world. We've all been through the trials of the last two years with COVID and all these kind of things that we've talked about ad nauseum. But the reality is that we're all going through various trials and you're going to go through trials. The question is, how are you going to, by God's grace, respond to those trials? Um, it had me this week thinking of how I respond uh, historically to bees, okay? I don't know if you like bees or hornets or not, but um, growing up, I was at my granny's house and when I was a little kid and early experience, it kind of scars you for life, right? It's like I, I sat there with a lollipop and then this bee came and stung me on the hand and I started crying like a baby and then just um, she comforted me or whatever, I don't know. And, and, and so that scarred me for life, so to speak. And I, I was scared of bees my whole young life through to where when I got married to my wife, we both said our biggest fears were not getting married and bees. Those were, those were the two things. And so um, I thought about that, and I thought about this British comedian that um, I used to listen to named Michael McIntyre. And Michael McIntyre said there's three ways that you can respond to hornets or bees. The first way is be a wafter. And a wafter just kind of goes like, oh, yeah, it's there, and we're just going to shoot away and just kind of like calmly but still kind of make some kind of effort, I, I guess, like that. And then you have the stay silent people, and the stay silent people are like, they're just dead, like, don't move. It can smell your fear. You really do not move and you'll be okay. 
And then the third person it, uh, that responds is the one who just completely freaks out, right? And that was me. So I don't know if that's you, but I would like run and scream and um, throw my wife and daughter under the bus. They still do that. Um, sorry, honey. But um, that, that's a reality is some people just freak out. And so this to me provides a little bit of a framework for the way that um, we can respond in life to what's happening to us, right? We can stoically say like, don't move. It's gonna be okay. White knuckle it. We can kind of like try to make a little couple efforts or we can freak out in life. And what James is telling us is that there's another option and that option is what I would say the kill shot. Because as I got older, I realized like if I don't like the bee, I just need to kill it actually. Like that's, I mean, it's, it's not that hard. It's not rocket science. So I learned to do that. Hornets, not bees. Bees are, are good. Um, so anyway, the point is that James takes and what would seem reductionistically, he takes all the experiences of life and he puts them into two categories and then expands on that with a third. And the two categories are suffering and cheerfulness. And, and really that is kind of what life is. It's suffering or it's happiness and cheerfulness. My kids used to come home from school around the table when they were young and we used to ask the same question every single day. Tell us, because like honestly, you know how kids are. It's like, if you just say, how was your day? They'll say, fine. So you have to like try a little bit. And I wasn't that creative. I said, okay, what, is, what was good, what was bad, what was hard, and what was easy? And hard and easy are just categories of good and bad. And so what was good and what was bad about your day? And we'd get a little bit of insight and get a little bit of uh, kind of information from them and be able to kind of engage with them. They had, we, we gauged their response to life with what was good, what was bad, and that's what really James is doing for us here. He's saying, if you're suffering, so first point in, in this God-centered response to all of life is, is pray. If you're suffering, pray. Now, again, I don't want to seem kind of like dismissive of your suffering because I know right now I'm suffering and, I, and I'm going through things. Um, and we can think that this isn't the answer. I mean, this word suffering here is a kindred word only used one time in the New Testament where Paul tells Timothy to endure suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So it's only used one other time. And he's saying here that there's all types of suffering here. It could be physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, financial, whatever. And so in that gamut right here, it could be national trials, whatever it may be, we're all suffering in some way. And James commands and commends prayer to us as the solution. He was a man who, according to history, actually put this into practice. It says in Eusebius, the church historian, that his knees were actually calloused and knotted because of how much he would pray. I mean, I don't know if that's true. It sounds really amazing and good. I, ho I hope it's true, but I, I do believe that James did have a serious prayer life. And in saying that, I know that all of us right now could feel a little bit guilty. I mean, who, it's like, it's been said, like the easiest way to make Christians feel guilty is say, we should be praying, right? I mean, I know in one sense, I'm convicted, possibly you're convicted about your prayer life. And so I don't want it to be like a moral message today or like a, a put you down message, but that is the reality that probably most of us haven't responded. Maybe you're like sitting there stoically. Maybe you're just kind of like a couple little prayers. Maybe you're freaking out instead of praying. I don't know, but maybe some of us haven't just responded to life with this methodology of actually praying about it. We say we're praying, but when we say we're praying, we're actually just thinking. So 
I don't know all the answers at all, um, though I think I have learned and grown a little bit in this idea of what Paul the Apostle called pray always, unceasingly. And I, I think I've learned a little bit over the years about prayer, just a touch. And so, and I've learned from other people. And so I want to speak practically a little bit and then also to the heart. So first of all, let's talk about practically like how to pray. Because you might think, and I know when you're a new believer, by the way, that, that it's easy. Okay, like when I was fresh, new, born again, and I thought I will never struggle with prayer. I will just, because I was responding to God. I was just easily talking to him about all things all the time. But what you realize is that it's easy to grow cold in your first love. And so um, I want to give us some points of prayer adapted from a guy named D.A. Carson. So think about these things with me for a minute, and then we'll kind of move on. Um, Because it is difficult and because you are suffering, the first thing is you need to plan to pray. Okay, and these are just quick hit items, but um, I'm so glad that Tuesday morning, for example, we just started recently praying as pastors and elders. I need that discipline in my life. You know, that says, the book of Acts says that that's like one of the priorities. And so we take that prayer list that, that comes in and we're actually just praying over it. The missionary prayer list, we're praying over it. And it's really, really a privilege. And this last Tuesday, I realized like this is such a privilege actually because people are entrusting to the pastors and elders of this church to pray over these things. And I get the privilege of actually going over them and saying, Lord, would you heal this person? Would you work in their mind? Would you work in their heart? Would you provide for this person? What, and, and if it wasn't planned, I wouldn't do it, honestly. Like, I need the discipline. And so um, some of us who are more like creative and more mystical, we don't like that idea of planning, but I want to encourage you to think about planning uh, how to pray. Second, deal with distractions. Uh, can I just tell you, like, this thing right here is a massive distraction to prayer. Like, my first impetus in the morning is not to, like, go to God, but to pick up my phone and look at something on my phone. And I'm sure that's true for many of us. And so uh, it can be a tool as well, but I want to encourage you, like, deal with distractions. Maybe it's the distraction of your own mind. And when I was brand new, born again, I really had, like, a scattered mind. You probably think you still kind of do, but, like, um, I had this scattered mind. And so, like, I would like, take a, a paper and I would write down things as they just pop into my head over and over again because otherwise I just couldn't pray. I, I would spend my entire time just in random thoughts. And so I needed to deal with that distraction. There's different ways to do that. Um, partner with people in prayer seasonally. Like maybe you just, like you're in a season, you need to find one or two people and say like, I am going to, I, I need help. I need to pray about this issue. Would you pray with me for the next month about this particular issue as I'm dealing with it? Um, sort out some kind of a system with that. I'm, I'm not gonna go through all of these. Mary scripture with intercession and confession. Scripture is the catalyzer for prayer. Um, one of the disciplines that God has enabled me to enjoy is just like, and I, honestly, my simple mind, I was like, hey, there's 150 Psalms. If I do like five a day, then I'll get through every single month. And it'll just kind of, so I just go through the Psalms every day, look them over. I like, I know what's coming now a little bit, but it's just like, I see what is grabbing my attention and I mingle praise, I mingle in confession and intercession for other people as I see things. Um, So this past week we were in Psalm chapter 108, and that day we were praying for the missionary, and it says, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, talking about all the different places of Israel. And I'm like, okay, Lord, Slovenia is yours, Italy is yours, all these places, and I just commit those to you in Christ's name. Pray until you pray. That's the last one I really want to talk about. Um, 
let's be real. Like a lot of our prayer is like, hey, God, I haven't talked to you in like years or a while, um, but could I get this? <laughs> and it's just this kind of little interaction that, that isn't much. And when we say pray until you pray, it means literally pray until you meet with God. Pray until you actually get a sense by your spirit that you are connecting with the living God, that you have said something to him and it's been heard or that he has through his word or by his spirit said something to you and you have heard him. This is hard, this is subjective, but it's a reality. And and all I can say is it's probably one of the most encouraging things in prayer that you can ever experience, to know that God has heard you. Uh, I had, and I didn't do this first service because I didn't want to be like, I I don't really, it's like Paul, when he says like, it would be a crime to tell you what I've experienced, but I I did feel like I should have said it, so I'm going to say it this service, and that is that it's such a joy, and I hope you've experienced it, where you've been praying about something secretly, like Jesus said, and then it happens, right? Can anyone relate to that? Where just a few weeks ago, I was driving up to Bogus Basin and going skiing, and uh, I was just literally crying out to God in such a way where I was really upset about a situation, crying out and, and kind of like shouting out to God. And I prayed a specific phrase and prayer to God, and then I got an email later, met up with this guy, and he literally used the words that I prayed out of my mouth to say, this is what that person said. And all I can say is like, that was so encouraging to to my spirit to know that as I pray, God heard me and it's happening. Okay. And that doesn't happen all the time. I'm just being real. Like, you know, but that did happen that day. And there's other things I've experienced in my life and pray until you pray. You see, God doesn't say if you're suffering, pray because it doesn't work. He says it because as the Bible says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. He wants to meet you in your suffering. He wants to meet you where you're at. That's why this passage tells us to pray. Um, If you are struggling, like I said, go to the Psalms. And I also wanted to kind of commend to you guys this in in, in this category. I I found a book this past couple weeks called um, Every Moment Holy. And I'm not trying to get you to buy a book. I'm just saying I've been blessed by it. Um, It's called Every Moment Holy. And what it is is it's a book of prayers because... Romans 8 tells us, like, sometimes we don't know how to pray. We say, Abba, Father, we come to God, but it's like, it's inarticulate groanings of the Spirit in our hearts and minds. And so sometimes I need, whether it's the Psalms as my prayer book, to give me words to express to God, or I need other help from other teachers, people. I found this book, and honestly, it's just been blowing my mind. As, you know, you find something, you're like, dude, I got to share this. So this is it. It's this book called Every Moment Holy, and I'm going to share with you first uh, a little prayer that he wrote about one type of suffering that we've all experienced, I'm sure, and that is, it's called a liturgy for experiencing road rage. Okay? Um, so thank you, Californians, for moving up here. Um, and No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. We really are thankful you're here. I, I lived in big cities, like 6 million, 2 million. I'm not bothered. It's fine. Um, but nonetheless, here it is. We've all experienced it. It says this. If my heart were more content in you, O Lord, I would be less inclined to rage at others. Let me gauge by the knot in my gut the poverty of my own understanding of the grace that I have received from a God who loving me chose rather to receive wounds than give them. Take from me my self-righteousness and my ego-driven demands for respect. Overthrow the tyranny of my anger, O Lord, and 
its place, establish a better vision of your throne, your kingdom, and your peace. Amen. Now that is a, a type of suffering that is superficial, but it's real, okay? And I, and I only say that this book goes through many of these types of experiences and I think expresses this idea of living a God-centered life that takes every moment and brings it back to him in prayer in the more serious moments as well. So for example, um, this one, which has meant a lot to me uh, recently because I found out that uh, my dad is uh, passing away with cancer. Um, it looks like, I mean, we're praying for healing as this passage instructs, but um, this is something that has been helpful for me. And I, and I, wanna, I wanna read it to you in case you have a loved one or you've experienced that or you've had bad news about your own health that says this, let me not be long surprised or dismayed, my king, by this news as if of my own mortality, as if it had ever been in doubt. Rather, let me learn to rest in the preciousness of all the gifts you have given your children, especially the gifts of eternal life and hope by which even our present sorrows might be transformed into future joys. I wouldn't think of these words when experiencing what I'm experiencing. I'm so thankful that someone has prayed and thought through and said, God, this is how I'm gonna come to you with my suffering and this reality of my mortality. I'm so thankful. So look to helps if you need to. And, and, and then second category in this first point is the good. So that was a bad suffering. Whatever suffering you go through, come to God. Second is cheerfulness. Um, thankfully, it's even in here, right? Like we celebrated the baptisms, right? We were celebrating the harvest crusade. I don't want to be a downer because right now you might not be going through suffering. You might be going through an experience of cheerfulness in your life, even in the midst of suffering. Praise God. That's good. And, and James indicates that there are all types of seasons in life. Like God graciously scatters the good with the bad, right? If, if it was, now it does feel like, hey, we had COVID, we, got, we had the, the gas prices, now we've got Ukraine war. It does feel a little bit much, but nonetheless, like God scatters the good with the bad. We're all here, we're breathing, we're alive, we're cognizant, we got food in our bellies this morning, we're, we're doing fine by God's grace. We're not uh, where other people might be dwelling in difficulty even if you are in very deep difficulty. So if you're cheerful, sing songs to God. You see, this is just as much of a temptation as it is not to go to God when you're suffering. Like how many of us just don't give him glory or praise when something good happens? Or struggle when we come into the worship gathering. It's like, my heart's just not really feeling it, Lord, today. I don't really want to sing. I mean, I, it's one of my joys in life, like, um, my oldest daughter, I'll see her sometimes here singing like hands up and full of, and just like, that is amazing grace. Like, first of all, like the, the fact that she could even be a Christian after living with me, that's a miracle. Um, but like, so praise God that she's like hands up worshiping. And then my youngest daughter, I'll hear her in the shower singing songs of praise. My boys, they're kind of like mumbling them. Not, I'm not so sure, but sorry guys. But like, it, that's the reality. Guys sometimes struggle with that a little bit more. But anyway, the point is like, it, it can be so difficult to actually engage and worship God for the ways that he has blessed us to give him glory. You know, it's like the proverb that says, Lord, don't let me become poor so I'd curse you or rich so I would forget you. Don't let that happen. 
And so this idea continues that all of life is a response in prayer or praise to God who's present in every little moment. Now, I want to read you a couple more liturgies about this because, again, I'm just going to share them with you. Here's a couple simple ones. It says this, a liturgy upon tasting pleasurable food. For the infinite variety of your creative expression, I praise you, O God. You've made even the necessary act of eating a nurturing comfort and a perpetual delight. So true. Like, I remember I became a believer, and I don't know why, but, like, I took a bite of an apple one day, and I was just like, dude, this is amazing. Like, I never looked at the apple before. It's like a perfect package, juicy, one little, it's amazing. Like, it really is. Praise God. Um, And then, second thing, uh, upon experiencing cheering laughter, I praise you, O God, for these inexplicable gifts of mirth and merriment and laughter, delighting in such foretastes of the wellspring of eternal joy that ever bubble and flow within your glad trinity. You see, like, the joy that you're experiencing this morning, if you have anything, these little laughs, these little joys, they're all an expression of this triune God who within himself is like loving Father, Son, Spirit, and it just bubbles over into this world. And the God that we make and the God that we serve, the God that's real, is expressed and shown in joy just as much as he is in suffering. Now, this is one that I want to share just because I think we, we can misuse the joys that God intended. So here's one upon seeing a beautiful person. Lord, I praise you for divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now, train my heart so that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or desire, but would instead be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. Right? So, like, we just twist things, but instead we can take them to God. I mean, it's like, I I learned this at one stage, you know, when I was younger. There's young guys in here who deal with this stuff. It's like, or old guys, it doesn't matter, but, like, you know, I, I used to like really think like the Pharisees, like walk on the other side of the street, like cover my eyes. I don't know, whatever it may be. And again, I'm not saying that there, you shouldn't take certain steps, but I will say this, that like when your heart comes to the place where you can look at beauty and praise God for it instead of lust after it, it's a wonderful freedom in God's grace. Um, let's move on. That's the first point that all of our life, God is quorum Deo, in our face, and we are worshiping or we are praying to him. Second thing is that prayer is an integral part of our connected community. Look at James 5.14 again. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James now mentions this idea of someone being sick, and that could mean Weak, it could be spiritually weak, physically weak. People debate this in this passage. We're not 100% sure. So I will just say that it's broad and that it could be physical or spiritual. And, and most likely, though, in this particular passage, there's a physical sickness that's in hindering the person from actually coming to the gathered people of God and worshiping together. That's why he says you must, that's the imperative, you must call for the elders of the church to get them to come and pray for you and anoint you with oil. Okay, The person probably is sick because of sin in this passage, though sin is not always a problem uh, with our sickness by any stretch of the imagination. But in this passage, it seems like it is. But what I want to focus on here is this, that the, the broadening out of this idea in this passage is that it's not only the physical ailments that you have, but it's also the spiritual sickness and lack of health that you have. And the answer is really seen in the body of Christ together. That's what this passage 
shows, one of the things that it shows, that, that, that it's a grace of God that when people are suffering with the specific suffering of sin or anything else, the church shows up. The church should show up. I mean, I've seen that time and time again in the last year. I, I have done a few funerals in the last year. Uh, one of them, very, very, well, all of them very sad, but one of them particularly sad in its effect on the family. And what I loved, though, was that one of our community groups that they were involved in was just like on them, you know, in love. Just meals and care and prayer, anything that they needed, finances, etc. The church comes together like no other entity. And God have mercy on you if you don't have that kind of community when you come to the suffering and sickness points of your life. This is why, like, I, I, again, this, obviously it's part of my job, but I really have no, like, intention to be like, hey, let me get you into a community group so I can control you or put you here or just tick the box or anything like that. Honestly, I swear to you by the grace of God that it is because I don't want to see people live unhealthy spiritual lives or be left on their own physically in their suffering. I want to see God's people live the way that we should by God's grace so that we experience health. Um, Some of you might say, well, great, how do I do that? Uh, So I do want to just give some practical shepherding this morning. Um, It says, call for the elders. Do you even know who the elders are? (laughs) Well, let me show you some pictures. First of all, pastors, elders used synonymously in the New Testament. Here's all the pastors, Calvary, Boise. Get their faces down. Get it on lockdown. You can see them. Call out to them if you need to. Next is the elders. This is on our website, so I don't have to keep it on here too much. But next is our elders, Monty, Brian, John, uh, Paul, and Tom. I want to encourage you guys, know who they are. Have a connection. And if you don't have a connection, that's why we have Calvary Communities. Look at these guys. we got more people. We're just going to keep throwing people up here. Here's some people that, that are Calvary Communities leaders. And then we got another page of Calvary. And this isn't even everybody. The elders and pastors have delegated some authority down to these guys to care for you, the body, so that you would never be left on your own. You never have to walk alone. This is a wonderful, beautiful grace of God to you and to me and to us. I am in a Calvary community. I am loving it, enjoying it. So all that just to say, this calling for the elders, which it says is the responsibility of the sick person and responsibility of the elders to be willing, shows this interconnectedness that is a healthy expression of the body of Christ. Um, and this is something that's really hard for, for all of us in our day and age. Um, and it's important, though, because we can even take something like prayer, and I experienced this this week in, in a conversation with somebody. Prayer itself can become an individualistic pursuit in which we vaunt ourselves mystically or spiritually over other people. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, like, if I'm praying a lot, then I'm hearing from the Spirit, then what you think and what you do with your life as it relates to me means nothing. And and all I'd say to you is that is probably the worst kind of spirituality that we could cultivate because the true God, the triune God, that if you're in contact with him, he's going to bring you closer to people, not send you further away. Now, obviously, the church can be messed up and messy and broken and hurtful and difficult and, you know, you've got people. We're all so different. Like, I, I praise God, like, we just had this rap concert. Sadly, I can be there because it was my family. But, like, um, that, that is 
a group of people that I hung out with when I was in England, but then we would have like these, I guess you'd call them middle-class people. And it like, I was the middleman. I always said like, I'm in England, I'm an American. There's working class, middle class. I've got no class, so I'm right in the middle. Like, that's the reality. But, but basically, uh, you know, I was the middleman. The, the working class would be like, oh, they're so stuck up and they're so this and they're so religious. And these guys would be like, oh, they're so, you know, just aggressive and rude and whatever. And I'd just be like, you guys, like, it's okay. We can all fellowship in Jesus. But here's the reality. If your spirituality sends you further from people, I don't think that's Trinitarian, godly, interconnected spirituality in the Bible. God is holy, and by holy, he comes in to our suffering, comes in to our lives and brings us into community and marriage relationships and family relationships and all of those things. And he expresses that in a couple ways in this passage. He says, now as he broadens it from the elders, confess your sins, your transgressions, and pray for one another. Um. We are to be a community. You're not to walk this life alone. Andy Minio said it best, I think. Well, he said it a way that I like. Um, he said, you want to go somewhere fast? Do it by your lonely. Want to have a blast? Then you got to bring the homies. Might slow you down a little bit, be some arguments, but that's what makes for all the good stories. It's we against the world. I just, I like that song, so I thought I'd share it with you, but um, I didn't rap it for you, so you can be thankful. But anyway, the idea there is, again, individual relationship with God and spirituality might go fast, efficient. You might know what to do. You're the prayer warrior. God spoke to you, all that kind of stuff. But communal spirituality might slow you down. You have to work things out. Come to one mind. Come to unity that is a blessing from the Lord. And then you have something much better, much healthier. And many times that then, because there are arguments, results in the need to confess your sins to each other. Um, confession of sins. I mean, who does that scare here this morning, right? You're thinking like, I've been in cults where they push me to like admit all of my wrongs and hidden things so that they can put it in a file folder. And you, we've all seen the things about Scientology. You've watched the documentaries, all that kind of stuff, right? You're, you're scared of that. You under, I understand that. I understand that. But right at the heart of this passage, he says that it's not that you're coming to a pastor or a priest like you need to confess your sin and they're holding it against you. It's every single one of you together doing something that only spirit-bought people who have come to the cross of Jesus Christ can do. Okay, here's the reality. If you struggle to confess your sins, we know you're a sinner already, okay? You know I'm a sinner. I miss prayer meeting twice this past week. So I'm not even always doing the things that I'm telling you to do. I'm just saying, like, I'm a sinner. I fail. Like, we know that. And this passage gives the idea that solo individual Christianity is actually something that's a distorted, sick view of life. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, He said this, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And then a guy named Matt Chandler said, if you want to kill your sin, bring it out into the light. That's what you need to do. The only way to kill darkness is to drag it into the light. So all I'm saying, brothers and sisters, this morning about this point is this. You want to be healthy? You want to be real? You want to be free? You want to be spiritually strong? 
you're probably going to have to be vulnerable. And it's going to be dangerous. And it's going to be strange at times. You're not going to understand people. People aren't going to understand you. But like my friend Seth, young Bible college guy who I met with yesterday morning in our church, he said this, my strengths might impress you, but my weakness will connect with you. And I love that. You know, I could get up here this morning and tell you lots of stories about answered prayer and God did this and God did that and give you an impression of myself that's true but not fully real. And all I'll say to you is like, yes, God has done all that, but also I've sinned greatly in my walk with Christ many times. I have not been the perfect parent. I have not been the perfect husband. I have not been the perfect son. Uh, This past week, that was one conversation I had with my dad. I just said, Dad, I'm sorry for not honoring you all the time like I wish I would have done. It was a conversation that needed to happen. I'm thankful we had it, and he's super gracious. Thankfully, he's a believer. But nonetheless, all I'm telling you is this confession of sin brings health. Now, if you don't believe me just because the Bible says it, let me kind of share something that I heard through various means from uh, a secular neuroscience named David Eagleman. This is what he said. He said, we have competing populations in in our brain. One part that wants to tell something and one part that doesn't, right? We felt that. There's a real physiological battle going on in the brain. So keeping certain behaviors secret, especially behavior that's seen or understood to be wrong in our own consciences, he's not a Christian, so he's saying it that way, means that you continually struggle with yourself. The internal dissonance and lack of sense of personal integrity is draining, The struggle involved in keeping a secret is stressful. This means that your brain will register the fact that there are increased levels of stress hormones going through your bloodstream as a result of this struggle to keep your secret. Your brain does not enjoy this stress. Those living duplicitous lives live with the stress of keeping a whole section of their life secret from the people they see every day and care about. The fact that their brains are marinated in stress hormones due to keeping the secret over and above the effects of the wrongdoing themselves can cause impairment in the person's ability to stay healthy and function well. I know that was a mouthful there, but basically he's saying, like science shows in the brain that if you don't live a clear life of confession before God and people that you're around, you will be unhealthy mentally. Do you think there's possibly a connection with the rise in mental health struggles that we all have with the fact that we're so isolated? Do you think there's a connection in that we have lots of secrets on our phones and other places and we don't ever bring them out into the light? I think there probably is according to this guy and according to the Bible. The Bible says like, hey, if you're uh, like David, he, he held down his sin and he said, your hand was heavy upon me, God. And then it says in Proverbs that bitterness rots the bones out, literally. So, um, I know confession is strange, but through the cross of Christ, we can. And it should be a normal thing like, hey, could you pray for me? I just really am struggling with anger today. Could you pray for me? Because I'm really struggling with anxiety today. Could you pray for me? I'm really doubting God's provision in my life. Could you pray for me? I'm really, really, really even having bouts of insecurity about the Lord's work and saving my soul. Could you pray all of these things? Bring them out into the light. He says, confess your sins. Now he says, pray, for, pray with one another. Pray for one another. Um, and so 
again, just a practical point. Do you guys know that we have a load of prayer meetings here? I don't know if you actually know this or not. Like, so throw up the slide. We have Monday morning prayer meetings. That's when I missed the last two weeks, confession. Um, I, li- I literally could not, like, I, I'm in my mic. I can't, I almost didn't want to put this slide up because I didn't want to tell you that I'd missed the prayer meeting. But I just got to be humble. Uh, so, like, hey, I missed the prayer. Monday mornings and then Thursday mornings as well. The pastors and elders twice a month on Tuesday, once a month in Garden Valley, as it says there for a whole day. Um, uh, military prayer Monday nights, uh, women's prayer Wednesday at noon. And again, these are just the central organized time. Then all the Calvary communities, all the ministries, the outreach ministries are involved with, like pray with all prayer surrounding. And one of the things I love about this church actually, and if you're younger or newer here, this church has a history of being a praying church. And while there's things we all don't like about this church in different ways, one thing I do love and do like, and that's what I'd say is like that we are praying church by God's grace. Don't ever let that change. Please, after service today, share with someone, maybe in your community group or just someone you met, be bold. Say, can you pray for me like this? Come forward for prayer. Call for the elders for prayer if you're sick, etc. So anyway, that's that point. Let me move on to the last thing, and that is this, uh, in the last couple minutes. Prayer is to our God in this passage who heals and saves us. Prayer is not meaningless words in an empty room. Prayer is to our God who heals and saves us. The prayer of faith will save up Save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another that you may be healed. Again, the restore in this passage is the Greek word sozo, which means saved. It means saved, maybe physically, again, maybe spiritually. Um, but the whole point is, it's identifying God in this passage, saying, I am the Lord, your healer, as it says in Exodus chapter 15. There's this conditional clause, you'll be healed and you'll be saved. Now, we, we confuse this in our society, don't we? We're like, well, there's spiritual and there's physical. But this passage says God is a healer and what he does is he's constantly bringing his healing work into your soul or into your body as a result, not just of your need, but of the identity that he has in and of himself and the story that he's writing in the entire Bible. See, in the book of Genesis, our world got broken and sick. And God graciously, when there was tribal warfare and all these things, he picked out a people, gave them a law, it made a healthy flourishing for their society that wasn't enslaving other people, and then he spoke his word to them. And he promised them the son, the Messiah. He gave them all these things, made them healthy. They still were sick from head to toe, it says in Isaiah, where they would be near with their lips and far in their hearts. Then he sent his son to be the perfect servant, to be the perfect nation, to be the perfect representative of God, the image of God stamped on this earth. And and in that, he walked around and he said to people, you're healed. You're forgiven. Sometimes when someone came with a healing problem, he'd say, you're forgiven. And people are like, what are you talking about? We didn't come for you to forgive his sins. We came for you to heal his body. And yet that's what he did. It's holistic. This is God. He knows your deepest need is the sickness of your soul, but he will also heal your body. So, 
he will do so in response, James 5.16, be to the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Here's the hopeful gospel part of this message, and that is this, that because of what Jesus did, and then as he went to the garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, Father. As he went to the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As he prayed himself, living every moment before his God, before the Father, when he did that, and died upon the cross in the presence of God, he purchased for us a righteousness that's not our own. You see, so one of the reasons you struggle to pray is because you don't want to go to God because you know your sin, you know your weakness, you know you haven't prayed for like five years or a year or a month or whatever it is, you know you haven't prayed till you prayed for a while. And, and I'm just telling you, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ makes you righteous by his blood. And the Father hears you not because of you being perfect, but because of Jesus being perfect. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. And he did all of that for God's glory, for our good. And so we are righteous in Christ. And so you can go to the Lord who heals and saves and be restored from sin, be forgiven from sin. You don't have to be ashamed, whatever it is today. And it really is, the first step is really as simple as just looking in trust in prayer to Jesus. Look, if you're not a Christian here, I, wanna, I just want to tell you this today. That the reality is, you might think it sounds foolish. Just come to God and he'll heal you. This room is made up of testimonies of people, including myself, who 25 years ago, as a young, broken man who almost died twice, who ruined my brain with drugs and alcohol, I should have not even been able to talk this very simple talk I'm giving today, but by God's grace, he slowly healed my scattered mind over many, many years. And what I'm saying to you is that that's the reality of the God that we have. That is real. It's an experiential reality, but yet it is real nonetheless. Combined with the historical truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is indisputable, the reality is that God is real. And please, the exhortation for us then as believers, for, for you then as, as someone who may be not believing in Christ, Jesus told the story, he says, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And he said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and that serpent was where Israelites got wild and you know, crazy in sexual sin, and they basically like were poisoned by these snakes that God sent, and they took one, and they made this image. They put it up. God says, put the image, Moses, then have people look at it, and they'll be healed. They looked. They got healed. It doesn't make sense. They looked. They got healed. And Jesus says, just like that, believe. Look at Jesus on the cross, and you'll be healed. You'll be saved. You'll live forever. Even if you don't get physical healing, the healing that he began through the work of the cross and instituted through the resurrection will be yours forever. See, this is the hope of the gospel. I'll finish with this. Alistair Begg said this. He said, whether we remain flat on our back or feel the blessing of strength again, God's grace is sufficient for us today and complete rejuvenation is almost here. You see, Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
I heard a loud voice from behind the throne saying, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they'll be his people and God will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then he goes on in Revelation 22 to show the tree that was in the garden now is the tree of life. And it says the leaves are for the healing of the nations. If you're not suffering at all today, at least you suffer with this world, with what's going on. Aren't you tired of the wars and rumors of wars, but yet the promise of the gospel is he'll heal the nations. Let him begin with you. If you're not yet a believer, turn to Christ, look to Christ. If, if for us as believers, come into health. Pray, seek the Lord. Praise him in all moments of life. Come together in community. Confess your sins. Don't be burdened by them. Pray for each other, husbands, wives, children's parents, not competitively or hypocritically or looking down on one another, but as fellow sufferers and weak people who say, let, let me take your needs to the Father with you. Let's do that. Lord, we um, are so thankful for your mercy that you let us come to you, God. What an unbelievable grace to us that you would allow us to, as those who have turned our backs on you, to come and to seek your face once again, to let us respond to the suffering of this life that we instituted by coming to you to get our healing. Lord, to take all the good moments and not let them just fall to the ground and and say, oh, that was nice, but to actually have a relationship with the one who gives all those good moments and praise you. Lord, let us be free and clear as your people, open, transparent, receive one another's confessions in grace and let us be healthy. Lord, may you be glorified as we see you as our healer over and over and over again. I ask in your name, Jesus, amen.